Well, we've been walking through a uh, series in First John uh, called Alignment, and I would encourage you again to turn your Bibles there, uh, again, close to the end of uh, Scripture and uh, right to the end of the book, or again on your digital uh, Bible, just uh, find First John. We're going to be in First John parts of chapter 2 and parts of chapter 3. It's called Alignment as it's a series that is looking at how we... Um, uh, think about our lives and uh, think about our faith and how the alignment is needed and necessary there in that. This is a, a text that is uh, so different and actually a series that is so different from the one that we just came through in uh, earlier in spring called One Big Story, where we looked at uh, the, all of Scripture and the entirety of the Bible in sort of a 30,000-foot uh, view and, and just sort of to understand how they all fit together uh, from kind of a high elevation. In this series, we're walking through kind of verse by verse and chapter by chapter and just seeing what John is writing to this church and how he is encouraging them in their faith and just some of the, the issues that they're, they're dealing with. I appreciate John for many reasons and his, his writing for, for many reasons. I mean, he speaks, first of all, with just confidence and give it, building confidence and assurance into the believers that he's writing to. And we'll see that again today as he speaks words of encouragement, words of confidence, words of hope into them. But also, uh, I appreciate how he just addresses conflict and, and goes right at it and kind of speaks uh, right into it in a really pointed way. And today we'll see of how he speaks into the, the bad and deceitful teaching even that was there that he had to address uh, as well. John also speaks profoundly of God's love and the forgiveness of sin. And over and over again, he comes back to very central gospel messages that are just so central to the very core of the gospel, of who Jesus is, what he has done, and the implications for us. And so those themes come through over and over again. I also like John, though, because as I get a little older, his writing style, I think, is similar to me at times. Um, it's been said that John is, at times, hollow, it's hard to follow his train of thought. And his ideas don't always seem well-connected, some commentators say. And, and also, he repeats himself a lot. And so, I like John more and more all the time. <laughs> Things like the word abide, remain, come through over and over again. He, he uses that word continuously throughout the book, and you'll see that. There's one chapter that we'll get to in a couple of weeks in chapter 4 where the word love is used, I think, 26 times in one chapter as he's talking about the love of God and the implications of the love of God and how we are called to love others. And so he repeats himself and these themes just come through again and again and again. Last week, we ended off in uh, chapter 2, verse 15 to 18, and we ended with three things of the world that continually compete for the love of God in our lives. And what I would say that they are distractions at best, and more appropriately, as John calls them, they are sin. And he gets right to the core of what those things are. And, and those three things that we ended with were cravings for physical pleasure, cravings for everything that we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. Pretty relevant things for us, if we're honest, as he's getting to the core of some issues. Today we're going to look, as I said, in parts of chapter 2 and 3, and we're going to look at a number of themes. One of the ways that I'm wired is I, I like to look at and see what is sort of the one main theme that is coming through here, and oftentimes that works well, sometimes it doesn't work well. 
This is one of those Sundays where it doesn't work well. There is not one theme. There are multiple themes that will come through and that we'll touch on. Let me just mention a few of them. He talks in this text that we're going to look at, he talks about the last hour and the end times. He talks about the Antichrist. He talks about conflict in the church and how to like, sort of get rid of people who are causing dissension. That's interesting. He talks about tr- truth and unity. He talks about anointing of the Holy Spirit. He talks about justification and sanctification by faith. What does that mean? We'll look at that. And he talks about the overwhelming love of God. And so these are just a few of the things that we'll touch on. And and my hope and prayer is that the Spirit of God will speak to you, encourage you, and connect with you in ways that are very relevant to where you are at this morning and what God wants to say to you today. So first of all, John, 1 John chapter 2, and just beginning in 18, and I want to first of all just read uh, two verses that sort of bookend this section, verse Uh, 18 and then also verse 26 because I think they give us a bit of a framework for this first section He starts off by saying dear dear children the last hour is here You have heard that the antichrist is coming and already many such antichrists have appeared From this we know that the last hour has come Pretty pointed stuff And then a little bit further on in verse 26. He says i'm writing these things to warn you about those who would want to lead you astray And so what we can't miss in this first section is that John is dealing with some very specific issues in the church, dealing with conflict in the church, and uh, addressing some particular people that he is even referring to as antichrists. Interesting. Strong words, strong language. And we've sometimes heard the word antichrist used in a variety of ways or, or used sometimes maybe we think of it in terms of just anybody who opposes our thinking on something. It's not what John is meaning. He uses it very specifically here. He's talking about anyone who opposes Jesus as the Christ. Hostility towards the gospel. Whoever that would be. Those who deny Jesus as fully God and fully human. Those who deny the Trinity of God, of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so he's saying these people don't teach this. These people, in fact, are teaching something very different than this. They are opposed to Christ, anti-Christ. They are opposing them, and they are leading people astray. And then he says that from this we know that it is the last hour. The last hour has come, in fact, he says. And it begs the question, so what does he mean? What does it mean when he talks about the last hour? You know, it strikes me that over the years, as you look back at history and the history of the church and the things that the church talked about and emphasized at different times, end-time discussions are they kind of wane and they come to the forefront and they kind of ebb and flow, don't they? There are certain seasons in the church where maybe even in your era through your lifetime where it was talked about a lot, the end time things and how do we understand those things and other seasons of the life of the church, it seems like it kind of fades away and isn't really discussed at all. And as people have wrestled with things like how to understand Revelation chapter 20 and where it refers to this thousand year reign and people talk about post-millennial and pre-millennial and amillennial and all those kinds of things which... The church, I think, is argued at length about and things that don't maybe matter quite as much as we sometimes like to think they do. But then we wrestle with the question, how do we know? How do we understand? And we debate at times. And I think, again, we need to avoid the extremes of having an unhealthy infatuation with those things, as some people do, to the other extreme of actually saying, well, they don't matter at all because how can we ever know? So we really just sort of disregard it, which is also not helpful. And I think what John is saying in here is that we need to live as ready people. 
We need to live not as people who are looking at, okay, when will that end time happen? But we need to realize that we are in the last hour and we need to realize that we need to live in such a way that Jesus could return at any point in time. These feel like the final days is what he's saying. Isn't that interesting? How many times have I heard people today say, these feel like the final days? And in essence, that's what John is saying as well too. He says, when you look at the evil that is prevalent in the church at this time, when you look at what is going on, people of God, these feel like final days. There's one uh, pastor in the 19th century who I think gave a helpful image of how we might think about this. And he said that the course of history, he says, history in some ways uh, we might think of it is, is, has changed direction. And rather than history running towards the end, and I have a picture of that, so he says the first one is history before Christ, and then you see the end, and he says rather than thinking of history running towards the end, that there is an end time, but rather that since Jesus, history has now turned and runs parallel. Interesting way to think about it. I find it helpful. That since Jesus has come in the incarnation, when Jesus first came to this earth, even what John is talking about after that time now, he says how history is now running parallel with the end time. And that it's like we are on the brink of it all along. If you think of it as this, this front of this stage and sort of this precipice, it's like history is running along the edge of this stage, along the edge of history. And at any time, the return of Christ is imminent little bit different way of thinking about when the end come. What does it mean for to be in the final hour? But John is teaching, just as Jesus taught, that we need to be living as ready people. Not obsessed with, well, when will that happen? But are we always ready people? Jesus, in fact, was very specific to people that they should not speculate about when the end would come but to live ready. Peter also warns in his letter to the churches, he says, you know what, God's measurement of time is very unlike our measurement of time. And he was refuting those people who said, well, God is really slow in terms of his response of returning. Where is Jesus? Why isn't he returning as he said he would? And he said that for God, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. And we need to live with the end in mind. And so John, in a very similar way to what we might hear today and how we might feel today, he's saying, you know, the concentration of evil and the deception that is there fits the description of what Jesus and the apostles were talking about, that the end is near. And so we continue to run along the edge of history. And John, just like Jesus and just like Peter, calls us to live as godly and holy people, live as ready people. Live as people anticipating Jesus' return. And John is also saying in that you need to live discerning lives because you know the truth. Live in the truth because you have the Spirit of God within you. In the ESV it says, but you have been anointed by the Holy One and you have all knowledge. Let me just read verses 18 and following where he says again, Dear children, the last hour is here. You have heard that the Antichrist is coming and already Many such antichrists have appeared. And from this we know that the last hour has come. These people left our churches, but they never really belonged to us. Otherwise, they would have stayed with us. When they left, it proved that they did not belong with us. But you are not like that, for the Holy One has given you His Spirit, and all of you know the truth. So I'm writing to you not because you don't know the truth, but because you know the difference between truth and lies. 
And who is the liar? Anyone who says that Jesus is not the Christ. Anyone who denies the Father and the Son is Antichrist. Anyone who denies the Son doesn't have the Father either, but anyone who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. So it's pointed teaching that John is addressing to them. And he's saying to them, you have the Spirit of God within you. You have the Spirit of God among you. You need to abide in Christ. You can discern. In fact, in John's writing, when he talks about the Spirit of God, he often refers to it as the Spirit of truth. And he says that you have the Spirit of truth within you. You can know the truth of God. You can walk in it. Let's keep reading in verse 24 and 25. He says, So you must remain faithful to what you have been taught from the beginning. If you do, you will remain in fellowship with the Son and with the Father. And in this fellowship, we enjoy the eternal life that He promised us. So not only do you have the Spirit, but John is saying you also have God's Word. He says, Remember, you must remain faithful to what you have been taught from the beginning. So here is the Apostle John who had written a gospel account, that letter which would have been circulating among the churches and the followers there, of a first-hand account, a witness account of living with Jesus, of dining with Jesus, of seeing Jesus uh, put on the cross, died on the cross, put in the tomb, and raised again. Proof of the resurrection. And so this fundamental text that comes to us today as John's gospel would have been circulating among the churches and among these people that John himself had written as pastor to these people. I mean, you can imagine the foundational text that this would have been giving evidence to who Jesus was and what he had done. And he says, remember, remember what you have been taught. Remember the scripture that you have, in essence, is what he's saying. And the things that you know, the things that you understand, the things that have proven to be true, you have this historical count of what has happened. I mean, this would have been bedrock for this church in terms of their their teaching. And so again, we see that Scripture is the plumb line for this testing, as John is saying to them as well. And then he goes on and he says, verse 26, I'm writing these things to warn you about those who want to lead you astray, but you have received the Holy Spirit and He lives within you. So you don't need anyone to teach you what is true, for the Spirit teaches you everything you need to know, and what He teaches is true. It is not a lie. So just as he taught you, remain in fellowship with Christ. And now, dear children, remain in fellowship with Christ so that when he returns, you will be full of courage and not shrink back from him in shame. Since we know that Christ is righteous, we also know that all who do what is right are God's children. Similar themes come through again as he repeats himself again. And he emphasizes these things again that you don't have to, and he says you don't have to fear Christ's return as some people do. He says be full of courage because you are children of God. The evidence of that is in how you are living in obedience to him. As we talked about last week. Be full of courage. Don't shrink back because there is alignment between your actions and your faith. Those things go hand in hand. And so he continues to encourage them. You know, as I look at this text, I think that there are a number of challenges there for us. There's a couple of dilemmas that come out for me that I see. I mean, first of all, he's just addressing some of the conflicts that there and the errant teaching that is there within the church, and he's pointing them back to truth. But there's a a number of dilemmas for us for application. He has this strong language, and he goes hard after these people who are leading others astray, those who even remain in the church. 
And John's approach is pretty black and white. John's approach is pretty pointed. And so one of the dilemmas is that we're wired differently. We tend to see things differently than other people, don't we? Some people see the world and the issues in the world in very clear black and white. Things are pretty simple and straightforward, right? And again, some of those people are sitting right beside you. Other people see it differently. Other people see the world and issues in shades of gray. It's a little bit more complicated, a little bit more nuanced, right? Those are the people sitting on the other side of you. And so we have to realize that there's a difference in the way people view the same situation. You know that. If you don't think that that's right, then you're probably not married. Or you seldom talk to other people. Or you live on an island by yourself. Or something. But the reality is is that people are wired differently. People see things differently. Some people tend to see things in a very black and white way. You know that. And other people tend to see things in more shades of gray with subtleties and the complexities and the nuances. Hmm. And yet, how do we manage that within the church? John seems to be one who is much more black and white. John is one who is getting to the points of the issue fairly pointedly. So how do those who are more gray handle this? Here's the other dilemma, and that is managing both a commitment to truth and a commitment to unity within the church. So in any given local church, you have this commitment to unity and commitment to truth. I mean, you have many other things, but, but these are two things that you sort of have to grab onto and say, okay, how do we manage this? And John is actually trying to manage this here in this letter that he is writing to the church. And it begs the question, how far do we go in terms of our unity before breaking off fellowship with other people? When are we compromising too much when it comes to truth? Now, I know that you would probably like to have me give you really simplistic answers to that. There aren't simplistic answers to that. But what I do know and what we do see in this text is that there does come a time when unity must be sacrificed because of truth. Because unity in and of itself is not the only and ultimate goal of the gospel. It is not unity at any cost. And so John is saying that, and he's affirming that, and he's saying, you know what, when you have these people who are so opposed to Christ, you need to deal with it. Now, unfortunately, within the church, what often happens is we break unity on secondary issues, on issues that aren't so central to the gospel, that aren't the core issues that John is talking about here. We break fellowship with things that are lower-level issues that we get hung up on and we wrestle with each other with. But what John is saying is, he's saying it's on the main issues. It's on, is Jesus the Christ? Who is God? God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do we understand and embrace these things? And he says when you have people in your midst who are teaching something opposite of that, it is not the same gospel. And so I want to be clear on that. But it does leave us with this unsettling truth that there comes a place where you go, okay, how do I walk in unity if there's something that is so out of line? And John says, You challenge it. You change it. And these people left the church, and he seemed to celebrate that. Interesting. So again, this text leaves us with some of the really raw stuff of what it means to be the church. Let's continue in reading in chapter 3. It gets nicer now. And he says in verse 1 and following, he says, See how very much our Father loves us, for He calls us His children. 
And that is what we are. But the people who belong to this world don't recognize that we are God's children because they don't know Him. Dear friends, we are already God's children, but He has not yet shown us what we will be like when Christ appears. But we do know that we will be like Him, for we will see Him as He really is. And all who have this eager expectation will keep themselves pure, just as He is pure. Everyone who sins is breaking God's law, for all sin is contrary to the law of God. And you know that Jesus came to take away our sins, and there is no sin in Him. Anyone who continues to live in Him will not sin, but anyone who keeps on sinning does not know Him or understand who He is. Dear children, don't let anyone deceive you about this. When people do what is right, it shows that they are righteous, even as Christ is righteous. But when people keep on sinning, it shows that they belong to the devil, who has been sinning since the beginning. Since the beginning. But the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. Those who have been born into God's family do not make a practice of sinning, because God's life is in them. So they can't keep on sinning because they are children of God. So now we can tell who are children of God and who are children of the devil. Anyone who does not live righteously and does not love other believers does not belong to God. Hmm. First thing I want to talk about is what he referred to earlier on at the beginning verses, verses 1 to 3 primarily, but it continues on in the rest of what we read. Is he talks about the fact that there will be a family resemblance. That you know what? God is your father, your spiritual father. And he says, if you truly are abiding in him, if you truly are living in him, if you are committed to him, that there will be a family resemblance, that people should look at us and see some reflection of who Jesus is, right? Now, we all resemble different things and different people. We all have what maybe some call a doppelganger, right? That person who sort of looks like us. I had a gift given to me once. Um, my oldest daughter, who will remain unnamed, picked this one for me and said, yeah, there's a strong resemblance here, Dad. Um, thank you. The next slide shows a nicer picture, though. This is a picture I actually tried to show last year at Father's Day, and I remember our technology didn't work, and I wasn't able to, so I pulled it up this week. So here's a picture of, of my dad and myself. Now, our resemblance is mostly and probably what we're wearing, but... Uh, we do look alike in other ways as well, too. But it's true that there should be some kind of family resemblance, right? Like, I mean, you have a father and a son, and there is some measure of resemblance there. Like, you should look like each other. You tend to start acting like each other a little bit. You know that. And for all of us, as we get older again, we realize that we are becoming more and more like our parents, our mother or our father, one way or another, than we care to admit sometimes, Right? Now, I used to resist that, and I remember that. I used to resist that when I would see and feel and experience, oh, man, I'm becoming so much like my dad. But you have to know that in many ways, I am also just so thankful for that because I love my dad, and I've had the blessing of an of a earthly father who has loved and cared for me and has followed the Lord. And so I don't resist it quite so much anymore, even with my little idiosyncrasies that go, wow, that was Peter. But this section that we see here, it indicates that if we want to know that somebody is saved, if we want to know that somebody is abiding in Christ, then you need to look for a family resemblance. Is the Father in them? Is there evidence of the fruit of the Spirit, of this love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control? Are there evidence, is there evidence of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit 
within this person. That's what John is saying. Is that there will be this family resemblance to the Heavenly Father. It'll be so evident, he's saying. It'll be so evident. You will know. The Spirit of God will testify that. You will know because you'll see the love of Christ in these people. And when the love of Christ is not in these people and is completely absent from these people, that is evidence, again, that they are not abiding in the Father. In fact, he uses stronger language. He says, they're a child of the devil, is what they say. What John says. And so, this family resemblance is so significant and so important, and we see that that will come out over and over again. You know, it's interesting, even this morning I was... I. Uh, came across in Acts chapter 4, and I thought, wow, what a a great testimony. If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 4, verse 13, where John himself, John and Peter, are there before the religious leaders, they're before the council, if you remember that story, if you know that account, and they are testifying about the gospel, and they are being confronted and put in jail for what they are saying and how they are living. And now listen for the family resemblance here. And it says in verse 13, Acts chapter 4, verse 13, the members of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, for they could see that they were ordinary men with no special training in the Scriptures. They also recognized them as men who had been with Jesus. In other words, these guys were different. These guys had something unique. These guys had something different about them that gave evidence of a family resemblance to the Heavenly Father. And so John himself is one who has lived in that way. And he calls us and calls the church to the same way. And then lastly, these big words that I mentioned earlier, justification and sanctification. Normally I I stay away from big theological words like this because they're not always that helpful in this setting. But I think today they might be. There are such central gospel themes, obviously, but the words themselves can maybe even help us to remember what they are teaching us. And in the section where John is giving this great encouragement and also a great challenge where he is affirming like what he said last week, that if you love God, you will obey God. In other words, if you love God, there'll be a family resemblance. There'll be something different in your life and evidence of God in your life and therefore sin will not be in your life. And he's saying to them, it's not just about a cheap grace where you can just kind of grab onto this grace of God of no merit of your own and keep on sinning. He says, no, You don't need to do that. In fact, you cannot do that because God has called you to something different. And he says in verse 5, as you see it, in 1 John chapter 3, he says, and you know that Jesus came to take away our sins as there are no sins in him. He's talking about justification by faith. Justification by faith is removing both the guilt and the weight of our sins. It's like family adoption. It's like God himself has come and said, you are my child. You are my daughter. You are my son. By nothing that you have done on your own, you haven't earned this, you haven't done anything to to kind of gain this, but it is simply because I chose you. You were adopted into the kingdom of God. What an amazing picture of being justified by faith, being made right, and our sins are forgiven. But then he also talks in this passage that we just read about sanctification, of what it means to be sanctified, of what it means to be made more and more like Jesus. Think of it this way. Sanctification is, the defeat, is defeating the presence of sin in our lives. And you might think of it as this is the family resemblance part. The first one is like family adoption. The second one is like family resemblance. You need to look like Jesus, and you're called to that. 
And you can live in that because the Spirit of God is within you. And if you continue to abide in Christ, it changes you dramatically. And again, as we've said over and over, it's not about earning your salvation because that's the adoption part. But it's about abiding in and then the sanctification of becoming more and more like God through the power of the Holy Spirit and the work of Jesus on the cross. So he says there needs to be and there will be alignment for those who have true faith. That the Holy Spirit will allow us to walk in obedience. And when we do sin, there's the forgiveness of sin. That's justification. But the Holy Spirit also helps us to be free from the present of it. That's sanctification. And share in this family resemblance. And this is the alignment that John is teaching this church. And saying you need to walk this out. You need to live out this gospel. This changed people. Made in the image of God. And resembling your Father more and more and more. I want to invite the worship team up. As I just close... And I want you to just look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, that last verse that I want us to focus on. This beautiful text that John articulates again the love of the Heavenly Father. And he says, See how very much our Father loves us. For He calls us His children. And that is what we are. And you know, I want you to hear more than anything else today that truth. This verse, that if you give your life to Jesus and you bend your will towards His, if you walk away from the pride of self-sufficiency and you say, God, I, I can't and I won't do it on my own anymore. I can only do it through You. When we, when we give our lives to Him, He calls us a son and a daughter of God. And He says, and you see how very much your Father loves you. He calls you His child because that is what you are. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank You so much for Your overwhelming love for us. And again, we confess that we often don't see it in the ways that we need to. And Lord, I know again that for so many people here, when we think about Father's Day, we struggle with maybe the relationship we've had with earthly fathers, or maybe the challenge of, of being an earthly father. And yet, Lord, we just thank you so much that you are a heavenly father who gives us the perfect image to follow, to see. And we know that we can't do that on our own strength. There's nothing that we can do within ourselves, but only by the work of your Holy Spirit. And we thank you for that truth, Lord. Thank you for adopting us into your family. And thank you also that by your Holy Spirit, that you sanctify us and that you can help us to have more and more of a family resemblance. And so, Lord, I pray for that for each one of us here today. May your grace give us the power and the evidence and the ability to do that through your Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.